0: Keep your Bibles right at John 7, 25 through 36. That will be our text for this morning. Just going to continue to move through the gospel of John chapter 7. Been enjoying it. Very challenging stuff for me personally and probably for you. I, uh, but I've been enjoying myself in the Word. And I uh, just kind of marvel at it every time I open it up and study. We have been looking at John's account of Jesus' ministry, the things that he did and said during the Feast of Booths, one of the, probably the largest feast of the Jews, just hundreds of thousands of people descending upon Jerusalem to celebrate this great feast, and we've been looking at what Jesus did during it. So far we have looked at, uh, as we've been studying chapter 7, we've been looking at a wide range of subjects, like the intense hatred of Jesus' enemies, the Jews, the unbelief of Jesus' family members, His brothers, His literal half-brothers. We looked at how to obtain clear spiritual knowledge through humility and obedience. Uh, Last week, we analyzed the dangers of pride in a self-exalting spirit. And we also took a look at the subject of judging not by appearance, but with right judgment. All of that is packed into... Chapter seven. One of the most exciting things Jesus has done for us here in this chapter is give us a glimpse into the Father's work in the plan of salvation. He reveals three things in this chapter. First, the Father designed the timeline. We look at that in verses 1 through 13. Everything Jesus did from His entry into the world to His exit from the world, all these things were done in unison with this timeline. In unison with what I've been calling the Father's timing. The second thing is the Father designed the message, the gospel itself. We look at that in verses 14 through 24. Jesus said it himself that his teaching was not his own, it was given to him by the Father. When Jesus taught, he taught the Father's message. The gospel is the Father's message. In the next section, we will see the third thing Jesus revealed and other important subjects. I think it's befitting that we pray once more before we get into the text. Father in heaven, we humble ourselves now to acknowledge your greatness. We thank you for your greatness. We thank you for the the gospel, uh, the, the message of salvation, which is your message. You're the one that created it and gave it to the Son to proclaim to us, and he's the one that literally purchased that message through his sacrifice and death he turned the message into a physical into physical things that he actually did and accomplished for us he is the the word became flesh we thank you for those truths and for who you are uh, we humbly ask that you assist us now through the Holy Spirit as we begin to study your word uh, this passage is uh, a very challenging passage not only is there a lot of Material here in the text, but difficult subjects. And, Lord, we pray for grace. We pray for your mercy. We pray for understanding. We pray for the Holy Spirit. We pray for power. God, release your power in this place, through this Spirit, in our hearts, saving those who need to be saved, sanctifying those who need to be sanctified. And may you receive all the glory for all that takes place here and forever. We love you and pray in Jesus' name. In. So we're going to look at uh, 25 and 26 first. You ready to go? This is a fantastic passage. We begin, verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Notice the exclamation point. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Christ is the Greek translation for the Jewish word Messiah. So when you see Christ, it means Messiah. Now, last Sunday, we learned that that the Jews, the religious leaders, actually marveled at how Jesus was able to draw large crowds and gain supporters through his teaching, despite the fact that he had not come through their educational system or rabbinic schools, right? We saw that in verse 15. Now, the religious leaders weren't the only ones marveling at this point, because they literally marveled that Jesus had this ability to draw these people and that they would stay there and he would hold their attention and they would listen. But they weren't the only ones marveling here. Some of the people, just the common people of Jerusalem who were present, they also marveled. And what they were marveling at is the fact that the the tough-talking religious leaders, right, who'd gone around the whole week talking about how they were going to arrest and kill Jesus, They're marveling at how these men are standing there in front of Jesus who talked all of this smack all week, how they're standing there doing absolutely nothing while Jesus teaches. They can't get their mind around this. You guys have been talking smack about him all week. You said you're going to arrest him. What are you doing? They're just standing there like this. They're marveling at the fact that there's inactivity. They're not doing anything. And so they began to speculate and wonder, if maybe the religious leaders were involved in some sort of conspiracy where they secretly believed in Jesus as Messiah, and that's why they wouldn't lay a hand on Him. I wonder if they're not arresting Him as they said they would. I wonder if they're not doing that because they actually believe He's Messiah, and maybe they're trying to hide something from us. They literally began to discuss the matter. They muttered and said things kind of quietly. The religious leaders... I've been talking about arresting this guy all week. Why aren't they arresting him now? Maybe they're hiding something from us. Maybe he's the Messiah and they actually believe that and they don't want us to know the truth. Well, that's not at all the reason why the religious leaders were not pouncing on Jesus at that moment. We see the true reason down in verse 30, which we'll get to in a moment. In other words, they weren't standing there. They were standing there wanting to arrest him, but they couldn't. They weren't, they weren't involved in a conspiracy or thought, well, Jesus is really actually cool, but we don't want anyone to know, so we won't do anything. They couldn't do anything to him. And we'll see that in 30. While some were speculating and entertaining the idea of a conspiracy, others actually spoke up and corrected them. Look in verse 27. So they, people are talking and conversing about Jesus or what the religious leaders are up to, and then somebody else kind of pipes up and begins to speak. Probably, the, obviously, the religious leaders now are also interacting. We see that in verse 27. But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. They basically, this group, these religious leaders and whoever else was involved in it that made this statement, they, they basically defended their denial of Jesus' Messiahship through two false assertions. The first assertion is that Jesus cannot be the Christ because we know where He comes from. He can't be the real Christ as He says He is because we know where He comes from. Now, they no doubt were speaking about Nazareth, right? Jesus was born in Nazareth and Jesus belonged to Nazareth, which is in Galilee. And it is true that no prophet or the Messiah will, will not arise out of Nazareth or Galilee, That's mentioned down in verse 52. If Jesus is from Nazareth, he can't be the Christ because the Christ doesn't come from Nazareth. That's the rationale. But Jesus wasn't technically from Nazareth in Galilee, was he? He lived there at one time. He was raised there, worked in his father's carpentry shop, but he wasn't born there. He was born in Bethlehem, the place of Messiah. (laughs) He belonged legally to the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Messiah. His mother and Joseph were of the house and lineage of David, the house and lineage of Messiah. Everything where Jesus came from, where he was born, and his family, and the tribe that he came from, because Israel had tribes, it, it all aligned with what scripture clearly teaches about Messiah. Jesus aligned perfectly with what scripture says about Messiah, where he'll come, and his roots, and all of that stuff. And it's really incredible to suppose that the religious leaders here at this juncture and and some of the Jewish people in general that they could not have found this out, right? He can't be the Christ because they know where he comes from. They're thinking he comes from Nazareth. They don't know that he's from Bethlehem. It's a miracle that they do not know actual facts about Jesus. And especially if somebody comes announcing that they're Christ, you know darn well that the people that are waiting for the Christ would do the research. They would honestly search and inquire. One of the things about Jewish culture back then, and probably today, but really back then, pedigrees, genealogies, family histories, they were all very carefully kept by the Jews. So the idea that this guy can't be the Christ, somebody butts in and says, look, don't don't be even thinking about him like that. He can't be the Christ because we know where he comes from. That's just total and absolute ignorance. It's without excuse. And it's a flat-out denial of his Messiahship. That's the first assertion. The second assertion is that no one will know where the Christ comes from. This is something else that this religious group said. A tradition had developed among the Jews that Messiah would appear suddenly to the people rather than live among them and then rise to prominence. It was based on a faulty interpretation of Malachi 3.1, which says, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The religious leaders thought, and many of the Jews thought, that suddenly coming to his temple meant that Messiah would suddenly appear from nowhere. Almost like magic. Boom! He would appear and then he would go into the temple. Now, this prophecy, and it's a real legitimate prophecy in Malachi 3.1. It had absolutely nothing to do with the arrival or origin of Messiah. It pointed to what Messiah would do during the first and second advents. You know, the first appearance of Christ and the second. Jesus partially fulfilled this prophecy when he suddenly came to his temple and cleansed it. Twice at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. Isn't it interesting that one of the first things Jesus does as he enters into the ministry, as the Christ, he goes into the temple and cleanses it, whips all of the money changers and crooks in there out. He does it at the very beginning and at the end. Did you know that that's the first thing Jesus did when he entered the temple courts right after the triumphal entry, the last week of his life? He went in, went into the temple and cleared it again. So he does it twice. There's where the prophecy is partially fulfilled. The Jews were able to take this prophecy and twist it and make it sound like He would just magically appear. We wouldn't know where he come from. He's got no origin. So if Messiah is going to actually come, we're not going to know where He's going to come from. In other words, He's not going to be from Nazareth. He's not going to be from anywhere else. And there's another component here. Jesus will actually complete this prophecy. It's twofold. He completed the first part during His first advent, and He'll complete it at His second. When He returns to establish his millennial temple, reign, kingdom. Then the prophecy will be completely fulfilled. The religious leaders not only held to this bogus tradition, they used it to try to refute Jesus as he taught about his Messiahship, because that's what they're doing here. Oh, we know where this man comes from. Jesus is talking and preaching. We know where this man comes from. He can't be the Christ because nobody knows where he comes from, or especially because he comes from Nazareth, which is a hole in the wall. And that's precisely what they were doing here. Denying his messiahship through false assertions is, is an example of the obstinate blindness of unbelieving Israel. Just denial. The religious leaders and Jewish people in general had all the information they needed to confirm that Jesus is indeed their messiah. Jesus provided them with ample evidence his genealogy i mean his 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 roots his origin where he came from the fact that he was born in the city of messiah the fact that he was of the house and lineage of david all of these things aligned perfectly the miracles that he performed everything that he did provided ample evidence but because of pride and a self-exalting spirit the religious leaders and jewish people in general turned away from the facts they turned away from the facts continued to focus on things that tickled their ears and made them feel good about themselves. You know, false religion. If you do false religion really good, you feel really good about yourself. Or you feel really guilty because you can't perform well. And somehow these people thought they were doing really good. So they just turned away from the facts. It was so clear, but they didn't want to believe it. Look at how Jesus responded to their blatant denial right here of his messiahship, 28a. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from. Now look at that word proclaimed. I think this English equivalent falls way short of what the Greek verb here actually conveys. I don't know why the ESV translators went with it, but what Someone who translated it should have put was cried, cried out, or even called out. A better rendering would be, so Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple. And maybe your translation, if you use a Nazby or King James or something, says it. And I think those translators were closer to the real meaning. So Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple. He raised his voice. MacArthur wrote, Jesus gave the greatest publicity to this important teaching by voicing it loudly. What did Jesus mean when he said, you know me and you know where I come from? Well, here's three views. Some believe Jesus was speaking sarcastically. As in, do you know me and do you know where I come from? Are you quite sure that you are correct in saying this? Some think that that's what Jesus meant. Because, you know, we know where you are and where you come from. And we know that when the Christ comes, nobody's going to know where he comes. So they're thinking that some think that Jesus responded sarcastically. You sure you know who I am? Or you seem to have all the facts. Are you sure? You sure you know where I'm from? Now, Jesus may have used the same kind of sarcasm or tactic in John 16:31 after the disciples boldly declared their belief in him. Oh, Jesus, there's just no doubt we believe in you. And he said, are you sure you believe? Are you sure? Because there's an hour coming, indeed, and it has come, when you will scatter and abandon me. You sure you believe? Men such as Doddridge, Bloomfield, or Bloomfeld, and A.W., or A. Clark, not A.W., A. Clark, they prefer this view. Those are some theologians. They think it's a sarcastic statement. Some believe Jesus was speaking ironically, as in, truly, you do know me and where I come from. And poor, miserable knowledge it is, worth nothing at all. That's an interesting interpretation of his words. The idea is that the Jews' knowledge of Jesus pertained only to his humanity, they knew nothing of his deity. This kind of knowledge would indeed be miserable because salvation is based upon the totality of who Jesus is and upon the totality of what he has done. Men such as Calvin, Beza, and Rollock prefer this view. Lastly, some believe the sentence is a simple affirmation, as in, it is true that you know me and where I come from. I grant that in a certain sense you are right. You know where I was brought up and who my relatives are according to the flesh. And yet in reality you know very little of me, of my divine nature and my unity with my Father. You know nothing at all. Men such as Chrysostom, Matthew Henry, Alford, Wordsworth, And one of my personal favorites, J.C. Ryle, they all prefer that view. I think it's a combination of all three. Jesus used sarcasm from time to time in his teaching. He used irony. If you don't believe me, read John 10.32. He says something to the effect that, you know, I've done all of these miraculous signs. Which one of them are you going to go ahead and kill me over? That's irony. And obviously, there is no shortage of simple affirmation in Jesus' teachings, right? So he employed irony, employed sarcasm, simple affirmation. Jesus used it all. He had a full armament of weaponry that he used in conveying and preaching the gospel. So I think it's a combination. Last Sunday, I told you the Jews, religious leaders assumed that Jesus was just another self-seeking Messiah, like the ones who came before him. You know, like those false messiahs they had. Verse 18, Jesus demolished their assumption by showing that He is different from all the other ones who would ever come before Him and different from anyone that would rise up after Him. Those who came before Him proved to be false through the simple fact that each one served their own interests and sought after their own glory. They were glory hogs, just like the religious leaders were glory hogs who were standing right there in front of Jesus. They were all about themselves, those false messiahs. That's the characteristic of all of them. But... Jesus did the opposite. He served His Father's interests and sought His Father's glory. In doing so, He proved to be true. In verses 28b and 29, Jesus continues to obliterate their assumptions by further illustrating why He came and who He is. 28b and 29. But I have not come of my own own accord. He who sent me is true, and Him you do not know. I know Him, for I come from Him, and He sent me. Now, Jesus made some really, really big statements in these, this half verse and full verse. There's massive, massive stuff here. Big. I want to look at each of these statements, analyze each one. First one we see is, not come of my own accord. Jesus points directly to that intimate union between himself and God the Father, which is so constantly referred to in the Gospel of John. Literally, when he says that, he is tying himself to the Father who sent him. I came because he sent me. And he is pronouncing and proclaiming this intimate, deep, true relationship that he has with the Father that he's always had with the Father. This is a big statement. I've not come of my own accord. Again, remember, all of the false messiahs came of their own accord, came to do their own thing. And Jesus says, that's not me. Next statement, he who sent me is true. This is a declaration of the truthfulness of God the Father. God the Father proved Himself true by sending Jesus and is indeed the true and faithful God of Israel. Had God not promised to send Israel a Messiah, God sent Him. Promises came true. God proved Himself to be true, regardless of the fact that Israel didn't believe Him. He who sent me is true. The truth of the one who sent me is proven by the fact that He sent me is what Jesus says. And here's one of the most devastating ones. Him you do not know. Jesus leveled a serious charge against the religious leaders and others that were standing there. Their zeal of true religion and zeal for the God of Israel amounted to a hill of beans because in actuality, they did not know God. It's amazing how people today are so very religious claim to worship God, claim to serve God. Some even claim to blow themselves up for God. They don't even know God. Why? Rejection of the Son is rejection of the one, the Father who sent Him. Him you do not know. Why? Because He reject me. And look what else Jesus says. I know Him. I know Him. The knowledge of which Jesus speaks is that intimate knowledge which is necessarily implied in the unity of the three persons of the Trinity and the Godhead. There is a high and deep sense in which the Son knows the Father, and the Father knows the Son, which we cannot pretend to explain because it is far above our capacities. The Jews knew nothing rightly of God the Father. Jesus, on the other hand, could say, I know Him as no one else could. You don't know him, but I do. Again, he says, I come from him. Jesus declared the eternal relationship between himself and God the Father in that simple statement. It was as if Jesus had said, I am from him by eternal generations, always one with him. Always equal with Him, but always a distinct person. Always the only begotten Son. Always from Him. Lastly, His last big, bold statement. He sent me. Jesus declared that He is the sent one. The Messiah. The prophet greater than Moses, whom the Father had always promised to send. Earlier I mentioned that Jesus revealed three things about the Father's work and the plan of salvation in this chapter, right? The Father designed the timeline. The Father designed the message. In verse 29, we see number three. The Father appointed and sent Jesus the Messiah. In other words, Jesus is who? The Father's Messiah. The Father sent Jesus and no one else to save us from our sins to rescue us from the wrath to come, to rescue us from judgment. There is no other name under heaven by which men shall be saved but the name of Jesus. Here's my paraphrase of 28b and 29. Hopefully, this will help to give us a fuller understanding of what Jesus meant in this marvelous statement You do not really know me. I have not come of myself, independent of God the Father. And without commission, I was sent by the Father into the world. And he that sent me has proved himself true to his promises by sending me. You, with all your profession of piety and religion, do not know him. But I do know him because I came from him, for he sent me. Now, how did the religious leaders respond to Jesus' statements? Look at verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest Him. (laughs) Did you expect anything less? So they were seeking to arrest Him, but it says no one laid a hand on Him because His hour had not yet come. Well, there's the reason why they were just standing there and the people were wondering why they weren't arresting Him like they promised to do. The religious leaders were absolutely appalled by Jesus' claims and total disrespect for their authority and piety. Their anger turned to rage and they attempted to arrest Jesus on the spot, but no one was able to lay a hand on Him. Why? Why were they not able to lay a hand on him? Because the hour of his arrest had not yet come. Remember, the father designed the timeline. (laughs) According to his timeline, Jesus' arrest would not occur until six months later at Gethsemane. When the religious leaders attempted to arrest Jesus prematurely, not in accordance with God's timeline, right there in the temple courts, the father intervened and prevented them from doing so. That's not happening. I like what J.C. Ryle said. He said, it's, it is clear that they could do nothing against Jesus except by God's permission and when God, in his wisdom, was pleased to let it be done. How did the Father prevent them from laying a hold of Jesus? Did he supernaturally bind them so they couldn't move? I mean, you think about it. What did it look like? They were like, what's going on, Fred? I don't know what did it look like? What did this look like? You think about that? I think about this stuff. What did it look like? Did he supernaturally just get him? Hey, look, there's a bird. It's a parakeet. It must have got out. What did he do? How did, how did, how did he prevent them? Well, we don't know because the text doesn't say, does it? All we know is that they were not able to lay... Hands on him. That's all we know. Now the father did this more than one on one occasion. He really did. Verse thirty-two, verse forty-four, John eight twenty, John eighteen six. It, the religious leaders were in the business of trying to disrupt the father's timeline. They were always trying to stop and arrest Jesus, but every time they did it. couldn't do it because it wasn't his hour it's amazing another quote from ryle i like this one the doctrine before us let us note is full of comfort to god's people nothing can hurt them except and until god permits we are all immortal till our work is done to realize that nothing happens in this world except by the eternal counsels of the Father and according to His eternal plans is one grand secret of living a calm, peaceful, and contented life. Wow. Think about that. The Father has a timeline. The Father's in control. He has all of your days allotted. And nothing is going to take you out sooner than God allows it. And at that point, oh, that's so terrible, I'm taken out. Are you kidding me? You're out of this place. You're with him. We should not live in fear. We should not live in anxiety, any of that. He's going to accomplish all of his purposes. His timeline stands. Nothing can interrupt it. We're seeing an example of that here when the religious leaders are trying to usurp and do what they want to do and carry out their devilish will, and it's not permitted. Now it is later, and I thank God for that. Because he gets arrested, he gets tried, he dies, salvation. But for us, we'll be here until God calls us home, no matter what people do. doesn't matter. Now look at how some of the common Jewish people that were there just kind of hanging out, listening and watching what's going on and watching the religious leaders kind of stuck and they're just kind of watching everything play out. Look at how they responded to Jesus' statements in 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. Isn't that neat? They believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this guy's done? They got, if, if somebody comes, they're going to do more than him? These common Jews believed in Jesus as Messiah. And there's, there's nothing in the text that, that indicates superficiality or anything. This is real belief. This is real faith. It's baby faith. They just, they just got saved. But they believed. After listening to Jesus' testimony, these common folks here just discussed the matter with one another. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, they came to a logical conclusion about Jesus. The second half of verse 31 paraphrased, what greater evidence could anyone give that he is the Christ than this man has given? Who's going to give more evidence that they're the Christ than this guy did? He's given so much evidence. It's like they're saying, if someone else were to appear, would he perform greater and more numerous miracles than Jesus? I don't think so, man. I don't think so. It's as if they said, what then are we waiting for? Why should we not acknowledge this man as our Christ? And that's exactly what the people did. Not all, but some. Small, small group. Now, the religious leaders may have been supernaturally prevented from arresting Jesus, but they were still closely monitoring the situation. Look at 32. Pharisees, since one group of religious leaders, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him like it's going to work again. And one particular group, the Pharisees, they heard these commoners muttering, quietly discussing the legitimacy of Jesus' Messiahship, the conclusion that they had drawn in an effort to quell the little mini-revival that was occurring right there. These Pharisees combined forces with the chief priests another group of religious leaders, and what did they do? They went and got the cops. They went and got the police and said, go arrest Jesus. The police were unsuccessful. It doesn't say, but we know they were, because Jesus continued to minister. Why were they unsuccessful? Because the hour of his rest had not yet come. <laughs> you just keep trying it. It doesn't matter. Look at Jesus' response in 33 and 34. This is, this is just intense right here. This is just, Jesus just turns the flame up. Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. In my opinion, these two verses are some of the most terrifying words Jesus ever spoke. Here's my paraphrase Do not worry, I'll be out of your hair soon, for I'm about to return to him who sent me. Be warned. There will come a day when you will seek me, but you will not be able to find me because I am going to where you cannot come. When an unbeliever dies, when they physically die, his or her soul, the inner person, which is totally conscious and aware of what is going on around them and aware of what is happening to them, that soul and that inner person, that consciousness, who they are on the inside, the thoughts, all of that, is incarcerated in Hades. Hades is the abode of the dead, according to Scripture. Not only are they incarcerated in Hades, they are tormented and they are preserved for the day of final judgment. At final judgment, they shall be cast into the lake of fire. That is hell. The lake of fire is to be thought of biblically as the literal hell. Hades and hell are not the same thing. Hades is a holding place. It's Guantanamo Bay until you take the prisoner to the real facility where they're judged and then tortured in a way that is most extreme. I don't know why I said Guantanamo Bay. I was just thinking it's a place where you go and you hold people. It's a holding cell. That's a good way to look at it. Hades would be a holding cell in a county jail. If you go into jail, I don't know this from experience. If you go into kind of do. If you go into jail, you go into a holding cell for a little bit of time and then they take you from that holding cell and then they put you in your cell where you will be and do your time. Hades is like a holding cell. Hell is forever and ever and ever. So at final judgment, the souls of unbelievers, their consciousness, their inner person will be cast into the lake of fire for eternal punishment. The Bible vividly describes what this eternal punishment is like, thirst, gnashing of teeth, heartache, anguish, weeping, guilt, regret, all of these things. In Luke 16, 19-31, Jesus tells the story of a wealthy, unbelieving, uncharitable man who died. He went down into Hades and was being tormented. uh, But he could see paradise in the distance, and he could see Abraham, you know, the father of the Jewish nation. He could see him in the distance. And as he's being tormented, he sees paradise, or he sees Abraham... And he, he literally, Jesus, the way he tells it, he begins to cry out to Abraham for help. He asks him for a sip of water to cool his burning tongue. He even says, if you just dip your finger in cool water and just place it on my tongue, that would be satisfactory. But Abraham replies, I cannot help you. You brought this on yourself. And besides, there is a great chasm between us in which no one can cross. You see, the religious leaders and other unbelievers in the crowd were in danger of becoming like this wealthy man, this wealthy, unbelieving man, if they continued to reject and not submit to Christ as Lord unto death. You know, if they died in that unbelief. If they died in that unbelief and that rejection and that rebellion, they would be cast down into Hades and tormented. And for the first time... They would find themselves seeking Jesus and crying out to Him, but they would be unable to find Him because He would be on the other side of the great chasm, in paradise, in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father upon the throne of grace, pouring out His love and blessings on the elect. It is important for us to understand that when people in Hades seek Jesus, they do it for superficial reasons kind of like superficial believers do today well i just want his blessings i want his anointing i want this but i really don't care about jesus that attitude of the unbeliever in life transfers right into death and forever that attitude is maintained they only call out to him for superficial reasons they want jesus to quench their thirst and ease their suffering but they have no interest in jesus himself They do not suddenly want a relationship with Jesus. Well, I've died and I'm in hell now and I really wish I was in relationship with Jesus because then I wouldn't have to be suffering like this. That's not the way dead unbelievers think. If they were to think like that, then God would have to regenerate their souls while they're in hell. And God does not regenerate the souls of the dead in hell. He leaves them just as they've always have been. God does not all of a sudden bypass their, their rebellion and hatred of Jesus somehow when they go into hell. He doesn't do any of He doesn't change any of that. He doesn't give them a heart of flesh. He does not give them a desire for Jesus through the Holy Spirit when they're dead. Proverbs 1, 27 and 28 shows how Jesus responds to their superficial requ- uh, requests to ease their pain and suffering. Literally, that's, this is like a prophetic passage that deals with this exact subject. It says this, when calamity overtakes you like a storm, this is God speaking, when calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster engulfs you like a cyclone, and anguish and distress overwhelm you, when they cry for help, I will not answer. Though they anxiously search for me, they will not find me. I I want you to understand that the unbeliever who hates Jesus continues to not believe in Jesus once they're in Hades and continues to hate Jesus. It never changes. And any plea to Jesus is based on superficial reasons. Cool my tongue. Jump through my hoops. Active rebellion continues. A little side note. If you've ever felt that it would be unfair for God to punish people for what they cannot do, like submit to Jesus, consider what I'm about to say and pay close attention. God does not punish people for what they cannot do. His punishment is based on what they do blaspheme, rebel, sin, etc., and on what they refuse to do, love God, obey His commands, glorify God, live right, submit to Christ, etc. Unbelievers do not believe that they cannot submit to Christ. They do not believe that they cannot believe in Christ. They do not believe that they cannot submit to Him. In their minds, submission to Christ is not a matter of cannot, but will not under any circumstances. They will not submit to Christ unless God changes their heart. Why will they not submit to Christ? They hate Christ. Why? Because he testifies that their works are evil. Go back and read verse 7. We have no reason to believe that this, this attitude and hatred for Christ Ends after death. It never comes to an end. The rebellion, it's all still there. Especially since Philippians 2.10 seems to indicate that those below the earth will be made to bow at the name of Jesus in the future. Remember the passage, every knee shall bow and confess, even those who are in Hades and hell will be made to bow and confess. They have to be made to, as if their knees are blown out, so they do it. Those who die in rebellion remain in rebellion forever. And they shall be punished by God for their rebellion forever. How did the religious leaders, all of that is packed into Jesus' statement. How did the religious leaders respond to Jesus' terrifying warning? Look at 35 and 36. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me? And Where I am, you cannot come. At first glance, this looks like a real inquiry. You know, we really want to know where you're going. We're really concerned about what you just said. Where are you going to go where we can't find you? Because that that would not be cool. That's what it looks like at first. No, this is pure ridicule. They basically said, where does he intend to go that we will not find him? Well, he could go to the Greeks and teach his nonsense to them. If he does that, he's absolutely right. We won't find him among the Greeks because none of us would be that stupid to go spend time in the presence of such people. That's what they said. Pious Jews hated Greeks and other Gentiles. They hated everyone that wasn't like them. Everyone that wasn't as pious as them. Everyone that wasn't as religious as them. Everyone that wasn't as devout as them. They hated everyone but themselves, especially those who weren't Jewish. They called Greeks and Gentiles dogs. They wouldn't even travel through Samaria. They believed Greeks were subhuman. They avoided contact with them. Their point is, Jesus, if you want to shake us, if you want us off your tail, all you need to do is go to the Greeks, and you'll lose us because we ain't going to them go preach your stupidity to them go teach them ironically it was because of jewish blindness and rejection of their messiah that the gospel was taken to the greeks <laughs> and other gentiles by men like paul jewish rejection resulted in greek evangelism romans 11:7 through 11 they mockingly they even mocked Jesus by repeating his words at the end of verse 36 in an effort to stir up controversy what could he they're saying this out loud in front of people what could he possibly mean by you will seek me and not find me Obviously, he must be talking about going to the Greeks or something like that. And that would violate the law of Moses because there's a partition between the Jews and Greeks and Gentiles. Jesus would be disobeying. This is the kind of controversy they're now trying to spin here. After they've just been told, you're basically going to hell. Do you see how the unbeliever thinks? Clear warning given by the Christ himself. And how do they respond? And that way that they respond here in this rebellion and criticism and mocking, it never, ever, ever changes. They stay in it forever. In fact, I believe their hatred of Jesus grows as they're punished. They may even try to blame Jesus. Why well, you didn't give us enough evidence. If you had, we would have believed. No, you didn't want to submit. You hate me because I expose your wicked works. I did that, and now you're paying the price for them. You brought this on yourself. The words that Abraham in that parable speaks to the wealthy, unbelieving are the words that Jesus will speak. You did this to yourself. In fact, I don't think he'll have any words with them because they won't be able to find him. They mocked him. They rejected him. They wanted to arrest him. They were trying to kill him. Let's begin to close up. Tragically, the religious leaders missed Jesus' point completely. He was warning them to come to him for salvation before it is too late. You know, Jesus may have even been pointing to what we call the dispensation of grace or the church age. We're living in it right now, where the gospel is proclaimed, where God's mercy and grace is being extended to fallen humanity but we must realize that that dispensation of grace and church age will end. There will be no salvation offered after that. Jesus could have been pointing to that. Ultimately, he was warning them to come to him for salvation before it is too late. There is a day coming when you will seek me and you will not find me. Reference when you're in Hades crying out for aid, I will not answer. Like Isaiah, who wrote, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Isaiah 55, 6. And Paul, who wrote, Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6, 2. Have you called upon the Lord Jesus for salvation? Have you? Have you cried out to Him while His grace and mercy are still available during this dispensation of grace which may come to an end tomorrow, tonight? Have you called upon Him while He is near, while He answers? Today is the day of salvation. If you have not called upon Jesus Christ for salvation... You should do it now. You should do it while you still can, while you're still able. Things might be going good for you right now. Your health is okay, and you know things are have come together, and you feel like you're doing pretty good, but do you know how quickly life changes? Have you not seen how the world is and the dangers and things that are out there? I think every person who's ever whoever just dies suddenly is always surprised. I don't know what happened. Somehow that's the first reaction they have. Nobody is expecting to be hit by a car. Nobody is expecting to, to get an aneurysm and drop. You should never gamble with eternity. You shouldn't. I remember, I maybe I've told this story before, but... I was ministering to a guy for a number of years, and, and I was kind of saying the same things to him, you know, the urgency and all that. And, and I, I told him, I said, you know, and, and then I was kind of trying to tell him about the end times and what's coming, and, you know, there's going to be this seven-year period where it's just horrendous, but there's going to be people that get saved then. He, go, he goes, well, then that's good, right? Because I could wait till then. <laughs> okay, maybe I should figure out another story to tell, because this one didn't really work. I don't think you understand that one-third of the earth's population is killed. That's probably you. No, you don't wait. You don't wait. You don't wait till then and bank on that. Today is the day of salvation. The question is, are you willing to submit? And I'm a firm believer that if you are and you do, it's because God worked out that saving grace in you. You give Him the glory for it, not yourself. Have you called upon the Lord Jesus for salvation? If not, you should do it now. You should do it while you still can. The alternative is horrendous. Hades and hell are not a joke. It's it's just silly how people are today. I I hear them joke and trivialize hell all the time. Well, you know, life is pretty hard. It's kind of hellish as it is, but you know, I'm okay with hell. I'm okay with going to hell because, you know, how much worse can it be? Or, I don't know, I kind of I like it and prefer that. You know, I think I can hear ACDC down there and highway to hell, you know, and just, just stupid, just foolish. You know, people speak trivially about hell like that because they don't understand what it is. They don't understand the torments. They don't don't heed the warnings of Jesus. They don't listen to the parable of the man who was dying of thirst but would never die and always be thirsty. They don't listen. They don't pay attention. They laugh. They mock. They do like this. They make fun of Jesus' words. No wonder the response when they're there is, you brought this on yourself. Well, you didn't give me enough warning. (laughs) Yeah, I did. Remember all those preachers you laughed and scoffed at? Those were my warnings. Remember the guy you said was an idiot? Yeah, he was, he was, he was my mouthpiece. You remember that person that wanted to meet with you at the coffee shop and help you with the, your marriage and all that? And he was talking to you, or she was talking to you, or he was talking to you about, about you know marriage and all that. But really, it's about Christ. And once you get saved, then things can really change and you need to submit. You remember that? Remember that? That was one of my warnings to you all. Remember that? I think really, literally, Jesus will point out a book and show all the times. Well, uh, 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 uh. Seriously. He gave the people that he was standing in front of ample evidence. All men are without excuse. And I believe, as sad as it is, God is totally and absolutely just in his judgments. He doesn't punish people for what they cannot do. He punishes them for what they refuse to do. And it is absolutely true that without God's aid, it'll never happen. But the unbeliever never even ponders that, cares about that. I have told unbelievers that. I have told unbelievers, you realize that you can't get saved unless God initiates that in you? Well, that's stupid. They don't care. They just scaf and It's like they're fixed. They are fixed. They're dead in their sins. They hate Christ. And I'm telling you, the alternative is is horrendous and and I am not I am not a scare tactic fire and brimstone preacher I'm not but uh, but I just you got to believe me you do not want to be cast down into Hades you do not want to be thrown into hell at the great white throne judgment submit to Christ who died and paid for your sins so you won't have to Somebody's going to pay for your sins. That's what eternal punishment is. It's either going to be you or it's the fact that Jesus did it and you put your faith and trust in him for doing that for you. And there's your deliverance. Trust me, you don't want to pay for your sins. You may love sin right now, but you'll come to hate it. The payment for sin is death. It's terrible. Come to Jesus. Believe in him. He will not only save you, from your sins. He will not only save you from the wrath to come, but He will give you a new life. He will give you a new identity. He will give you a new purpose. He will give you joy. Amen.